You're now listening to episode 142 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with Joel Owens. Joel is a family man, avid runner, third degree black belt, entrepreneur, investor, triple net lease expert and broker. In today's episode, we discuss triple net leases, which type of commercial properties make sense for your investment strategy, current trends in the commercial real estate space and so much more. Before we dive right into today's episode, we wanted to let everybody know that we had a lot of positive feedback from the recent 2021 Tax and Legal Summit, where we discussed lucrative tax and asset protection strategies with top legal and tax experts in the industry, including the real estate professional status, the short-term rental loophole, how to use passive losses, cost segregation studies, 1031 exchanges, self-directed retirement accounts, the CARES Act, entity structuring, estate planning, and so much more. If you missed this incredible event designed to help you save thousands in taxes and help protect the assets and wealth you worked so hard to build, you can still purchase the recordings for only $97 at recordings.taxandlegalsummit.com. That's right. You can get all 30 sessions from the Tax and Legal Summit for just $97. Just head on over to recordings.taxandlegalsummit.com to grab your copy today. Hey, Joel, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background? Yeah, so I've uh, been in commercial real estate about 17 years. I'm a principal broker that owns my own company, and I'm also an investor myself. Nice, nice. So from what I understand, you specialize in triple net net leases. Is that correct? Yeah, so I started out in uh, commercial land development, assembling land parcels for developers. And then I went into um, large apartment buildings for so many years. And then over the past decade, I specialized almost all my businesses, single tenant net lease and multi-tenant net lease properties. What specifically about triple net leases really stuck out to you? Why focus on that strategy specifically? I like it more because it's passive. I'm dealing with businesses. I'm dealing with commercial uh, landlord laws instead of residential tenant landlord laws. It's just a lot less headache and the underwriting's different on the properties. I just enjoy that asset class a lot more than I did with multifamily. Nice, nice. And is there a specific, um, have you found, is there like a better rate of return? Is it about equal? Like how, how does it work from that perspective? Triple net is more of a passive yield versus an active yield. So, you know, when people inquire and they're talking about multifamily, you're dealing with residential landlord tenant laws, you know, toilets, termites, uh, the property taxes can increase, the insurance can increase, and you're not getting reimbursed by your tenants like you are in the uh, triple net space. What areas do you invest in currently? What markets? Well, mainly in Georgia, I have my office building here. Right now, I've been stockpiling cash and growing my my business for a while, the value of my company. And then I'm going after value-add properties. So I kind of do two buckets. I have my clients that buy the existing tenants with the long-term leases in place, uh, the investment-grade tenants. And then I have the retail value-add properties where I want to stabilize those properties for more equity upside as the syndicator or the sponsor side. Nice. So you syndicate some of these properties. Yeah. Right now with COVID going on, there's a lot of uh, 
vacant spaces that have come available. I read a recent uh, report the other day that uh, in Georgia, the, the dine-in sector, food sector is only about 8% down from its pre-COVID levels, whereas the kind of the coal belt blue states, uh, some of them are still negative 45% on the dine-in right now because they've, they've been shut down and they've got colder weather than the, than the warm belt states. Makes a lot of sense. So you're doing both retail and office at this point? Now, I don't I don't really care for office. I like medical office. Medical offices went more toward uh, neighborhood street retail. Regular office, it's it's real easy for the people to move in the middle of the night and, you know, or go to cheaper warehouse rent per square foot or work out of their, their house for an office building. Unless it's really something like, you know, a medical tenant where there's a lot of intended improvements and build out and they need that physical space to have the consumers come in. So, Joel, you, you mentioned coronavirus. What steps did you take as coronavirus is breaking out? And what are you doing today as you look at your current portfolio and underwrite deals to protect yourself from uncertain market situations upcoming? So um, in the single tenant space, so a lot of a lot of investors that might play in the residential space, one of the comments they make is that uh, there might not be a big buyer pool for those type of assets, but I would just counter that they're not really experts in that space. So they don't really have the network of buyers in that space. So when the single tenant net lease space, the neighborhood street retail is what I'm focused on, um, not the big box retail. And with that, those properties are heavily desirable. So right now, my clients, uh, we put offers in within you know, 24 hours of that listing hitting the market, whether it's three, four, $5 million property, you've got three or four offers on it already from buyers close to asking price that want to buy those assets. So there's just a lot of people that are, they're doctors or surgeons and they make high income or they're in the tech space and they sold up a business or a high level corporate executive. They have more money than time. They're just looking to put into an investment grade tenant with a long-term lease backed by you know, sometimes over 10,000 locations and they could put long-term debt fixed for 10 years. And no matter if the economy is going up, down or sideways or whoever's in office, um, unlike a stock, they can just set it, forget it. They don't have to worry about it and they just can get a stable return. So typically the way they look at it is someone that already has a bunch of high net worth. If they can buy an asset, say at a five to six cap and get in with 30% down, and then get an interest rate, say around 3.6% with a 30-year amortization, their cash on cash going in is about anywhere from about a six to 7%. And when the mortgage pay down, they're hitting 10% internal rate of return or greater before their rental increases kick in. So in that situation, they're outpacing inflation by maybe a factor of three times. And someone that already has money to put in something safe that throws them off that passive cash flow where they don't have to do anything and you outpace inflation. People buy that all day long. Well, so I'm glad that you mentioned the IRR and cash on cash because I was going to jump into that next. So, so you generally see 6 to 7% cash on cash, about a 10% IRR in the triple net space. Is that kind of generally yeah. the expectation? Yeah. Anything that's uh, typically anything that's 3 million and below in price point, about 75 or about 70% are all cash buyers and then 30% use stat. When you mm. kind of get into the four, five, six million up range, it kind of reverses. You have a majority using debt and only a small percentage putting all cash in just because 
They don't want that high concentration of cash, you know, four, five, six million dollars all into one property in, in that situation. So in the bigger properties, sometimes you can get a bigger cap rate, but you have to have a lot more cash because the the buyer pool is smaller of those that, that have that kind of money that can buy those larger properties. So sometimes on the bigger property, like a six million dollar property, maybe instead of a you know a five cap, you're getting it for a six cap. And then you're getting maybe 10 or 15 basis points better on the loan in those situations. So if you have the money and you can buy the bigger property, sometimes you can get a higher yield. So I've got a lot of questions about one, just buying the larger properties in general. But before we jump into that, how would somebody buying a triple net lease property add value? So how could somebody drive towards like a 15% IRR or an eight or 9% cash on cash return? You know, in multifamily, it's I'm going to buy dilapidated assets that I can come in and do some rehab work on. And I know that if I do 3000 per unit, then I'm going to increase my IRR and my cash on cash and everything else that's going to... So I'm going to budget for that. Does it work the same way with triple net or is it... I was also talking to a developer in Raleigh, North Carolina recently, and he had made the comment that he picked up a... Um, I believe it was like an office space or something. And it had not a great tenant in it. And then he locked in a really good tenant and the value shot up like overnight. And so it just, so he's able to sell it for this like incredible return and all this stuff. And it didn't even occur to me that your tenant could increase the value of the asset that you own too. So is that legit? Like, how do you, how do you increase the value of a triple net lease asset? Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways. It's, it's more a passive than active. So there's different ways of looking at it. So one of the ways is when you own a ground lease, you don't own the building, you own just the land. So a property, for instance, a Chick-fil-A that might be $6 million in price on an absolute triple net basis for a ground lease, they might only be paying 20 something dollars a foot in rent and you're buying it at $3 million, you know, at a 4 point something percent cap rate. So over time you blend the rental increases up and that's one way that you win. Another way that you win is if Chick-fil-A ever goes out you usually get the building by default if they don't renew the option period. And then you can convert the ground lease to an absolute triple net and then increase it to market rate rents and then have some upside that way. Another way is you can buy a uh, triple net property with an oversized lot and then you can parcel out that extra land that's not being used to put another pad on it. And you could increase your yield that way by taking one triple net property and going to two triple net properties. Um, as far as vacant buildings, the reason I like triple net is if you have an apartment building or you know, you're building a new home subdivision or anything else, there's a certain break point to where you're going to start making money at the tail end of that project. But this is like a big shopping center. If you lease up a couple of spaces, but then a couple of spaces go out until you get it really fully stabilized, you haven't seen that value. And sometimes that value can take you know, a long time, five to 10 year horizon versus single tenant, you can buy a vacant building. As soon as you put that tenant in the space with a new long-term lease, you've reached the full value of that property, that full right. upside. And what it sells for cap rate rise depends on the tenant. So you could have a mom and pop tenant, you could have a small franchisee, you could have a large franchisee, you could have a private large company, or you could have an investment grade credit company and depending on where it's located at and the demographics, and then what type of tenant it is and how long-term the lease is, those all play into the cap rate value that you can sell it off for. So I also know that like if I buy multifamily or a single family home, 
and I do rehab work, the extent of the rehab work, the quality of the materials is going to attract different types of tenants, right? So I can do very minimal rehab work or no rehab work, and I might get a C-class tenant. I could do really high-end rehab work, and assuming that it's in a decent area, I could get a class A tenant with tech jobs and you know, be rock solid. Does it work the same in commercial? Because in triple net lease situations, there's a ton of tenant improvements themselves. And do the tenants really care about what you're doing to the property or are they just looking for space to lease? It depends on the tenant. So when you're talking about Starbucks as an example or Chick-fil-A, they're not analyzing so much what the rents are per foot. They're wanting the highest grade A location they can get to drive the most sales per square foot profit for their business model. Um, and that makes them want to, you know, look for the best location. So you could have an A market, but if your location is kind of mid corridor or it's behind other buildings, it's not really what the national investment grade tenants are looking for. A lot of times they're looking for the A to A plus locations. Whereas if you have a strong franchisee, they're more willing to go mid corridor just to kind of be in that market. And they might be more sensitive to the rents they pay per square foot on their business model. So, you know, as far as what you're doing to the building itself, that varies based on the zoning for the area. So some cities and counties might want, you know, really expensive gingerbread, uh, which is the exterior portion of the property, what they want it to look like with the architectural features and all that. And that can run up the cost per square foot that the developer is going to have into the building for the look and feel. Sometimes there could be an issue where, on the site design for a quick service restaurant, they want the drive through on the side of the building, whereas the city or the county, they want, you know, the drive through hidden where it only, it only goes on the back side of the property. Mm. Or, or if you have a small retail center, they want the building at the front with some sidewalk and green space, and then they want the parking lot in the back. Well, at night, if people are going to that retail strip center, they don't want to go behind the building and park and then walk back around to the space for safety reasons. So there's different things that come into play depending on the county or the city or the state and their zoning regulations and then the site plans that the, that the tenant wants for their optimal layout. Location matters in real estate, but it like really, really matters in the commercial space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you have a Starbucks, you know, when I tell people, if you have a Starbucks, they're going to want the A location. If you have the A location dirt, and Starbucks is making all these demands, and you've got five other national tenants that also want that dirt, then you can position the lease uh, the most favorable to you when you go to sell, what a buyer will find desirable and a lender will find desirable for security. If you have kind of a B minus location in the area and Starbucks is looking at three of those locations from three different property owners, then they're going to try to beat up the property owners with their terms, like putting in termination clauses and we don't reach so much sales, we can get out of it. Or, you know, instead of a triple net lease, it's going to be a double net lease where you're responsible for the parking lot, the landlord, you know, and the roof and the structure and all this kind of stuff. So the less desirable dirt you have, the lower rent per square foot you can typically get. And a lot of the investment grade tenants tend to pass on those sites. So when you're buying that type of dirt, you have to make sure you get it really cheap so that if the national tenants pass, you can still rent it to a mom and pop tenant or a small franchisee and still make good money on the land. 
So uh, I want to touch on financing real quick because financing, at least my experiences with financing is that it's relatively straightforward. I can finance 75 to 80% of a single family home or a multifamily home. They're going to check my credit score. They're going to check my business income and they're going to verify that everything checks out. In the multifamily space, the larger multifamily space, they're looking at the asset itself. What do they look at in the commercial space with triple net lease properties. And let's talk about the two, maybe the two different levels that you mentioned. You know, you've got the sub four, $4 million properties and then the properties that are in excess of 4 million where they're financing more and more of those types of properties. What are lenders looking for? So the way they look at it, it's mainly goes on the tenant, but it depends on their quality. So if it's an investment grade tenant, they're looking at 80% on the tenant and 20% on the borrower. If you go to a large franchisee, it might be 50% on the tenant, 50% on the borrower. Then if you get into small franchisee or mom and pop, it's more 80% on the borrower and 20% on the tenant. Because as you go down in the quality of the credit or the tenant type, the odds of the space going dark or you know the, the long-term viability of, of the primary lease term gets higher. And so they want to put more weight on that borrower and make sure they have high income. So if the space goes dark and they need to retenant it, that they have the ability to keep paying the mortgage each month. If it takes them, you know, six, nine, 12 months to retenant that space and get a new tenant in and get them paying rent again. So that's one of the main factors. The other factor for the LTV, you know, investment grade tenant, you can get in when 30% down. But if you have a small franchisee type tenant, mom and pop, a lender might want you know, 40, 45% down to do those deals just because of the risk involved. They have a current appraised value of the property with the income and tenant in place. And then they have the um, dark value, what, what it's worth with just the building and the land dark with no tenant, no income. And at the end of the primary lease term, if the tenant doesn't renew the option and the space goes dark, they want the mortgage balance at or below that dark value. So that way, if you can't release it and have to foreclose, the lender can be made whole in the loan. What they're typically looking for, say you had a $3 million property, putting 30% down for 900,000, you've got a $2.1 million mortgage balance. They're looking for your net worth to be at or close to that $2.1 million number. And they're looking for your liquidity after your down payment to be about 10%, so 210,000 after your down payment. Sometimes lenders will make exceptions. If you're you know, a doctor starting out in early years, your net worth's low, but you're making seven, 800,000 a year, and you're on an upward trajectory, then they'll make exceptions and still give you the loan. So it's often a case-by-case basis on the location, the tenant, and the borrower, and what kind of loan-to-value they're seeking that comes into play. Nice, nice. So, so shifting gears just a bit, you know, we, we've went through, the world has changed a lot over the last two years, as everybody's aware. Um, it kind of goes without saying almost. And, you know, the retail space has changed a lot of stores have been closed, at least in New York, where I live for over a year now, in some cases, and some of them went bankrupt. Like I know one of the gyms, one of the fitness centers that rented out a retail space over near where I live went bankrupt as a result of COVID. What's the current status of the retail space, the triple net retail space as you see it today? I'm busier than I've ever been. I stayed really busy around the clock now. The pace of it's increasing. Without getting too political, I'll say in coal belt states where they, they shut everything down, there's a lot of net migration moving away from the coal belt states to the warm belt states. So about 75% of net migration is moving to Florida, Georgia, Texas. And then about the other 25% is moving to, you know, 
Arizona, Nevada, uh, the tweener states, we call them where people don't want to move all the way down, but they want warmer weather. So they'll move to Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina. That's where all the growth is going. And typically where the growth is headed, that's where the tenants want to expand because they see security and safety in following the money and following the people where the people are going. In the coal belt states, there's small isolated pockets of high income Whereas in the warm belt states, it's more outward rings of growth. So in the, in the cold belt states, you have to be more selective. On a per capita basis, uh, the United States is one of the most over-retailed in the world, but especially in the cold belt states with a lot of the net migration moving away and not many tenants wanting to expand in those areas, that leaves a lot of buildings sitting for a long time versus the warm belt states where a lot of tenants have expansion plans. If you have an empty building and it's in a good area and it's not, you know, a super large building, it's not 100,000 square feet or something like that. If it's, you know, 20,000 square feet and below, you have a lot of tenants that want that building right now to open up in these warm belt states. No, that makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton of sense. So basically kind of what I heard, because I'm probably moving out of the coal belt states down to one of these states. So I could say, and then so is a lot of people that I know. So that's accurate. It's definitely accurate. So I think what kind of what I heard there was that, basically the state of the market is going to depend on what state you're in for lack of a better term so like if you're in one of these states with the net migrations high there's going to be a lot of opportunities for you know the retail is going to be stronger than if you're in one of these states where the people are fleeing because there's going to be less buyers less consumers to go shop these retail stores and that's where you might see those uh, those markets suffering, whereas the retail in one of these other states where the net migration is high is it looks safe right yeah, now. yeah so for example in the coal belt state Maybe you had a national tenant before in a space and it was appraised with super high property taxes based on history of the past before all this net migration started moving away. And especially with COVID, people are wanting to move away to more suburban areas where there's more open air. They're not on top of each other. So that's caused some of the urban core areas to soften, especially in the coal belt states. So if you're buying a value add property in a coal belt state that's a vacant building, you really need to get a property tax attorney to fight those high taxes because if you can only land a mom and pop to a small franchisee tenant at a lot less rent per square foot than that national tenant that vacated that market, the value of your property isn't what the current property taxes are charging you for. That's an historic valuation before the market went down. So you have to be really careful. That's that's a good tip. That's a good tip. Sometimes you need to get the tax assessment reevaluated. So you might have already answered this question while we we're talking in the podcast today, but so basically, between the the smaller uh, retail space and the larger retail space, which one's stronger right now? Would you say is it the, the big box tenants, or is it going to be the smaller, you know, mom and pops and franchisees? So in the in the bigger spaces, you know, the big box stuff. What I tell people, most of my clients, we aren't buying the big box stuff. You know, the big box stuff is more for REITs and insurance companies and big funds where. They own 50 best buys. And if one of the best buys goes dark and it's sitting there vacant for two years before they land another large tenant because there's not as many tenants in that big box space, they can, you know, portfolio average the other, you know, 49 best buys and still make money versus if you're someone that's worth $10 million and you're buying a best buy worth $8 million and you're putting down, you know, 3 million bucks, that thing goes dark and it takes you a couple of years to release it that can really hurt that individual investor. So what most investors like now is the neighborhood small retail. As an example, instead of the big malls these days, it's just uh, people value time. And so if you have, for instance, a small retail center and Susie homeowner can go there 
and she can drop the kids off in karate and then she can go to the nail salon and get her nails done. And then after they pick up the kids from karate, they can go down to the end of the retail strip center and get pizza and take that home for a dinner all in one shot, you know, just five miles from their house. Then it's a huge convenience factor. So neighborhood street retail with a high traffic counts, great sight lines, junior anchors and large anchors like you have, you know, Chick-fil-A and Starbucks around your side, or you have a Costco, Target, Lowe's, Costco, driving that daily traffic to that commercial corridor. That's kind of what every in high demographic areas, preferably warm belt states. That's what most people are targeting right now. And that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think that gives a lot of clarity what's going on just overall in the real estate market in the last year or so. So I know you mentioned that you're, you're a broker of these assets. Uh, do you own any of these assets yourself? I have an office building. Um, I have a couple of offers out on some properties over the last few years or so many years. I've just been building up the value of my company. Um, 46 years old now. So it's kind of a balance of, you know, the future value of my company. If I wanted to retire or do a partial sell off versus um, investment assets today, um, I looked at owning some bigger retail centers, but I just don't like the management part of it. I've never really liked property management. So I like the single tenant lease assets. My uh, A friend of mine owns 10 million square feet of uh, retail. He's been a syndicator over 40 years and he's got a full-time you know, property management staff of 110 employees. And basically with the property management, they make zero profit. Sometimes when there's a lease up, they make a little bit of coin there. But the main reason he does it is the people he manages centers for if they decide to sell off market, he's already managed that center for five or 10 years. And so already knows everything there's to know about that center and he gets the inside track to buy it before anybody else. And that's the main reason that he does that with the big retail centers. I just like single tenant because you can improve the value of the property right away. And uh, that's the business model that I, that I want to grow moving forward on the investment side. I just like, I like small ball deals because if the economy down cycles or if anything happens, you're not overexposed. I had a uh, developer that built a public shopping center. This was over 10 years ago. And he had a pro forma where he's going to get so much rents and the economic market went down. He only got it 50% leased up. He had to do a workout with his bank to put some uh, payments on the back end of his loan. And then it took him about eight years for the cycle to come back and fully lease it up before he could sell it off. And I just don't want stuff that's heavy management intensive where I'm going to have to take eight to 10 years to get the value out of it. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. So kind of like what I gathered here today, you know, from everything that kind of went on is like, if you want to invest in institutional grade retail assets, you should probably just go invest with like a REIT or maybe like a DST for our tax folks out there who know what DSTs are. We have a few episodes on DSTs, Delaware Statutory Trust to be specific. But if you wanna get more, if you wanna get more hands-on, if you will, even though it's kind of hands-off still, um, and own them directly yourself, you'd be better off going with more of the, the, the single tenant, you know, small mom and pop or uh, small franchisees. Yeah, DST, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on DSTs, but I mean, I do have clients that ask about them. and. Basically, my thought on a DST is this. I mean, I've got a friend that's got a Security 7's license. He does raises for DSTs and business startups and joint venture funds and all that stuff. And basically, DSTs, due to their structure, they're heavy uh, fee laden on the front end. You're in them for a long period of time, and uh, they're hard to get out of. And you give up total control, which some people aren't comfortable doing. I think DSTs make sense where... You have a small percentage 
of your net worth tied up into them. So if someone was worth three million, but they have two million proceeds and they're gonna they're almost retired in age and they're gonna put it into a DST, I don't think that's the right move. You're putting a high percentage of your net worth into an asset you don't control, the exit or the timing of. Versus if someone was worth 100 million and they're putting in 2 million, then that's only 2% of their overall net worth. Another situation where it can work is if someone has a credit investor, but they have 300,000 with a 1031 exchange. And you know the only thing they could buy is a million dollar triple net property that's in a weak suburban to a rural area with a weak tenant. You're probably better taking that 300,000 and putting it into a DST of an eight or $10 million property with a, like a Walmart investment grade tenant or something like that you know, than owning some inferior asset that's out in the middle of nowhere. So DSTs have their place, but, you know, single tenant, you can be absolutely passive. You get the control uh, and you get to control when you want to refinance or sell the property versus a DST, you're kind of stuck. So there's pluses and minuses. That definitely makes a lot of sense. You always always got to consider very carefully your investment options before making a decision. But there's some considerations there. I never thought that way with DSTs before about like the portfolio of someone's net worth and how much you actually want to tie up in a property that you don't control because control is a big thing. And I know for a lot of real estate investors out there who've been operators for their entire real estate career, uh, control is a very, very important thing to them. So that's good to know. Before we wrap up, is there any other major big points you think that our audience should know about triple net leases? Yeah, I mean, I would say with triple net, the important thing is they're easy to own, but people underestimate the due diligence that's involved on these types of properties. They think you can just buy any investment great tenant with any lease and you're going to win. And that's further from the truth. Sometimes developers are paying out tenant improvements they get the tenant to agree to above market uh, lease rates and they're in weaker markets. So you're buying based on cap rate, you're putting money down. If that tenant ever leaves in that weaker market, say a weak suburban market, um, in an economic downturn, those are the first to lose value and the last to recover. So if the national investment grade tenant goes dark and you're left to release to a small franchisee tenant at less rent per square foot, your down payment, that you put down on the property is essentially gone at that point. You've lost money based on the lower rent per square foot that you can get. Um, and there's also termination clauses. Um, there's clauses where you have the investment grade guarantor on the hook, but then you read the lease and they're only on there for the first five years of the lease out of the 15-year lease. And then it goes away to some small franchisee. There's different business models that are weak. Like you mentioned, the, um, the gyms. I don't like the gyms. I see those go out all the time, constantly. So the way I look at a gym is what rent are they paying per square foot for that box size of that building? And if it's at market and they're going to go dark, then after you have to release the property for your tenant improvements and you know leasing commissions and attorney fees and all this kind of stuff, you're you're basically losing money on that property. So you can win with triple net, but you have to know what you're doing. I look at about a thousand of them a week nationally. I've probably reviewed over the years, I don't know, many hundreds of thousands, close to a million properties. So, you know, you really need to, you know, someone's been saving up this money for a long time, you know, putting down a million dollars on something or 800,000 or 2 million, that's a big chunk of change. So you need to make sure that you're working with someone that knows what they're doing. And by the very nature of the space, a lot of the commercial firms out there with their split structure, they're motivated to sell you, you know, a marginal, crappy, 
property that's in their seller's inventory because that's what their job is. Whereas I stay on the buyer side, I'm focused on representing the buyer. I'm not looking at one person's listings. I'm looking through my whole network I built up over 17 years to find the properties that I like the diamond properties. And then I present those to my clients to review and analyze. So basically, in the end of the day, the lease is a very strong component of the asset. And you want to make sure you have all your your T's crossed and your I's dotted uh, when you're doing the lease. And the lease is appropriate for what you're trying to achieve um, is kind of what I heard there. And uh, you're an expert on leases. So if our listeners wanted to learn more about you, what you have going on, maybe you wanted to work with you in some capacity, what would be the best way for them to do so? So it'd be my website. It's nninvest.com. And on the main page, there's a button that says start today. You click on that. There's a form to fill out that goes directly to me. And then I'll review the form and then I'll set up a time that we could possibly talk over the phone because everybody's just like taxes. I've talked to thousands of investors over the years and everybody's situation is different. The risk profile is different. Their age to retirement is different. How much net worth they want to achieve is different. And so you really need that phone call to get guidance and direction on, on what their goals are instead of plan of action from there. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So we'll go ahead and drop that into the show notes below for everybody who's listening, who's interested in learning more about triple net leases and Joel. So Joel, I want to thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. Before we wrap up, is there any final parting words you want to leave with the audience? Yeah. Um, I would say plan in advance. The good properties get multiple offers on them have a relationship with someone that's in the business because I built up a reputation over a long period of time. And so if there's multiple offers, the listing brokers like to go with known commodities versus you're some buyer buying a triple net property for the first time and you have no track record or experience. That's very hard to get the listing broker to sell you to that seller because if the deal doesn't go through and they get egg on their face, then it's hard for them to get future business and listings. So they're very careful these days about what the buyer profile is and who's working with that buyer to win the deal. Thanks again so much for coming on the show today. We're looking forward to releasing it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, You really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.